descending and apparently inevitable waves over a good part of the three continents, so that wherever the enemy was to be found, whether in Europe or Asia or Africa, or in the islands of the high seas, there also, sooner or later, were the British arms. There was a time when one or two campaigns were thought amply sufficient for the military energies of the most warlike nation. We have never pretended to be warlike, meeting our emergencies always with a certain reluctance as they arose. But in the present war we have seldom had fewer than six considerable campaigns on our hands at one time, and these in areas separated often by thousands of miles from one another and from us. It is one of the obligations of a great empire at war that it should be so. It is one of the privileges of a great maritime empire that it should be possible. It is undoubtedly the grand characteristic of the operations of the British Army in this war, and gives the only true perspective of our military effort in the field. To our share in the Allied front must always be added the fighting frontiers of the Empire. The British Army, now grown out of all recognition, was small and known to be small when the war began. It was a voluntary army, numbering approximately 700,000 men, of whom about 450,000, including reservists, were trained soldiers, liable for service abroad, and the remainder, a half-trained territorial force, enrolled for service at home. Besides being small, it was, from the nature of its duties, widely scattered. Over 100,000 of our best troops were serving at the time in India or on foreign stations. For all purposes, therefore, when war broke out, we had in this country a mobilisable army of something under 600,000 trained and half-trained men, 250,000 of whom were liable only for service at home. The striking or expeditionary force of this army was fully equipped and highly professional body of six infantry divisions and one division of cavalry, and with this force we entered the war. Intended primarily, as its name implied, for protective or punitive operations within the empire, it was on a scale proportionate to its purpose and to the size of our army. Our army, judged by a European standard, was small, our expedition force, judged by that standard, was diminutive, and the chief problem which confronted the government when it was decided to send this force to France was how to support and to supplement it. The story of how this problem was faced and overcome, of how home service men became foreign service in a day, and our little army of 700,000 by a gigantic effort of British determination and imperial goodwill was expanded into an army of millions, all this is a separate narrative to be related elsewhere. But we cannot afford to overlook it as we follow the fortunes of the expeditionary force in France and Flanders. It is the military background of all their triumphs and vicissitudes, and had an effect upon the tone of the war almost from the first. Even to our expeditionary force itself, with all its cheerful self-confidence and efficiency, it meant something to know that the country was in earnest, that as early as August the 23rd, while they were still fighting amongst the coal pits of Mons, the first hundred thousand volunteers had been enrolled and were already deep in the mysteries of forming force. The Retreat from Mons When a country goes to war, the first test of its military efficiency is the mobilisation of its army. This is a stage in the history of wars which the public is apt to overlook, because the arrangements are necessarily secret and complex, and are carried out in that first hush which precedes communiques and great conflicts in the field. It is nevertheless true that every war starts in the department of the quartermaster-general, 
and that by the nature of this start the issue of a war may be decided. We started well. From August the 5th, when mobilisation began, in spite of bank holidays and territorials en route for summer camps, the whole scheme of concentration and dispatch was carried out almost exactly to schedule without a hitch. It is calculated that during the busiest period the railway companies now under government control and brilliantly directed by an executive committee of general managers were able to run as many as 1,800 special trains in five days, an average of 360 trains a day, and all up to time. The concentration of the home forces and of the expeditionary force proceeded concurrently. On August the 9th, the first elements of the force embarked, and nine days later the greater part of it had been landed in France and was moving by way of Armines to its unknown fortunes. The smoothness, rapidity, above all else the secrecy with which the transportation was carried out,